Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. The sister of the murderer actually Facebook messaged mum to say, do you realise that was your son that got killed? Like, this is the, the intellect of these people that you're dealing with. Thirty-three-year-old Corey Power was found with fatal head injuries in a residential street just before dawn on a Thursday morning in 2013. He was back in the small fruit-picking town of Young in New South Wales after six months in Canberra because he wanted to be close to his young daughter. Just three days after his death, an interview with Corey's sister, Fia, appeared in the local paper. It's heartbreaking, but not for the reasons you might think. Fia feels compelled in the interview to say things like this. He wasn't a perfect person, but he was a grandson, a son, a brother and a father, and he didn't deserve to be killed like that. Fia also says in the article that people have already confronted members of his family to say that he got what he deserved. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Fia Power joins us today to talk about her brother Corey and about how he became a victim of crime. As always, it's not about apportioning any blame to Corey for his own murder, but about examining how it was that he came in contact with the person who took his life and how the systems around all the people involved continue to let them all down. In Corey's case, there's another narrative that we've touched on before too, which is the different values our culture places on victims depending on their lifestyles. And we'll get to that later. First, though, we'll get to know Corey. Corey Power, Fear's brother. We've chosen to disguise two names in this episode so as not to identify a child. We we had an amazing childhood in a little town, Sea Lake, in the Mallee. Um, Tiny town, surrounded by family. Fantastic, like just, you know, your typical country upbringing. 
our father wasn't, he was very absent and that affected Corey a lot. Um, he was, Corey was four years older than me. So when our father left, Corey was six. So for me, it was a non-event, but whereas for Corey, it was obviously um, a lot harder. And he wouldn't maintain contact with us as as kids or adults. So Corey kind of grew up with this perception that he was, you know, not good enough. And, yeah, even though he was surrounded by such good family and people, we never wanted for anything or needed for anything. But he just always had that that niggling thing about, well, if we were so good, why, you know, does he not want anything to do with us? Around the ages of 10 to 12, we moved to Ballarat with mum and her partner this is where things started to kind of go a bit haywire because he found a different identity. He wasn't just, you know, Corey Power from Sea Lake. A few of the kids thought he was pretty cool and, you know, he, he kind of became very popular with people and with girls and things like that. He didn't really tap so much into the drug scene then, but he was getting in trouble, stealing things here and there, nothing major though. So... Mum was basically like, you know, you need to pull your head in and start working and move on. So he moved to Mildura in Victoria, which we had some extended family there. And there he started doing really well. He was working as a Bricky's labourer and um, in and out of trouble. But anyone that ever knew him knew that he was a really good worker. When he turned up, he was like a really hard worker. Then he went and... By this time, I'd finished high school and I moved to Mildura as well. And he went off one weekend to go cherry picking. Oh, he went to Taree and him and a mate were looking for some work just to get out of Victoria and, you know, have a fresh start. And he eventually ended up in Young in New South Wales cherry picking. And that's basically where he met, um, which is the, the mother of his child. From there it went downhill pretty quickly. They, the group of people that he started living with and mingling with, they were all the same as in, you know, none of them kind of worked and they all lived in housing all through the generations. So there was there was nobody to kind of hold him accountable. So you mean public housing? Yes, public housing and generational, you know, use of marijuana, and it was so much easier just to bum around with all these guys and do nothing because that's all they kind of all did. He would work hard and, and he would go through stages where he'd really pick his, his life up and at one stage like he was building Aldi stores, you know, as a brickies labourer and he'd, he really would just peak and he'd be great. And then, you know, because of his circumstances with... <coughs> You know, she manipulated him a lot. I mean, he was willingly participant, don't get me wrong, but the lifestyle was just, it was too good to say no to. You know, they could have everything, they could do whatever they wanted. There was no accountability through even having to work because there was always a way around it. Even the group of people that he, you know, during this whole situation, all of them that have been through the court cases and the witnesses, none of them have had jobs. They have numerous partners every other week and different kids and it's very confusing and very completely something that we've never dealt with. Um, Corey come back and visited twice while I was in Victoria. I never went to his house because I didn't like his lifestyle. I, I'm very much against drugs, 
beforehand um, and I could see what was happening. And we, me and my partner, Joseph, we've been, I've been in Robinvale now for 14 years. We, um, we tried to get him to come here and work. We were going to put him up in a little picker's hut and work on the farm. And he sent his two mates and said, I'll be there next week. I'll be there next week. And then she fell pregnant with his child. So from then I kind of knew that, yeah, I'd, we'd lost him because he always wanted to be a father. It was the only thing he ever wanted to have was his own own kids and to be a better father than what we had. When his daughter was born, it changed everything because she become, uh, I hate to say it, but she become a puppet for to be able to use. You know, you do what I'm telling you to do, otherwise you don't get to see your daughter. We still deal with that today. Me and mum still deal with that, you know, play by my rules, otherwise you don't get to meet. Are you worried about talking about this way? Not at all. Publicly? Not at all. Okay. No, not at all. Um, I've always been straight up with how I felt about her, even to her face, um, you know, even to I didn't make it to meet until my brother's funeral because she refused to let me. Unless I brought presents and sent money, well, you're not going to see her. So, And I'm the type that that's okay because I'd rather stay away than have my niece being used as, you know, some type of puppet in, in an adult's game. So to try and get Corey back here after she was born, there was just no, there was no chance. He was not going to leave the area when, when his daughter was there. Mm. By now, uh, he's estranged, I guess, effectively from Absolutely. from you and your mum yeah. and you're his only family, yeah, because of his lifestyle choices and now he is with a partner that you don't get along with. Yeah. And so by the time this event happened, I mean, were you aware that his life had gotten to the point that it had? Probably, oh, I probably more was because I worked as an employment consultant through um, Centrelink and Jura. So I had seen and heard the progression just over the phone, like, you know, the way he started talking and uh, can I borrow money? And mum mum was very much in denial until she went and visited him probably six months before he was killed. And that was the most horrific trip she's ever had. She, it was, I think I spoke to her the whole six hour drive home just to try and calm her down because she had realised that, yeah, he had hit a whole new, new, world. What do you remember her talking about? Um, injecting drugs. Oh, wow. Okay. Injecting so this is, 20, yeah. this is 20, 2013. This would have been early 2013 when she visited. Yes. Yes. And what was his drug of choice by that stage? Um, as far as we know, it was, it was um, uh, speed. He did mix ice here and there, but it was predominantly speed and he was a marijuana user for, for years. According to police, he was by this stage a drug addict who stole to feed his habit. That's the way they described your brother at the time of his death. Yes. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. And his associates were people like Owen Jr. Fuller? Yes. Who was... Uh, a younger man, a much younger man. He was 20 years old in 2013 and your brother was 33 years old. Yeah, so Corey was um, initially best friends with 
Owen's oldest brother, Tommy, and that's how that group kind of, they just, there was, there's no age for all that group, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so like there could be 15-year-olds kicking around and 40-year-olds and, you know, and they're all living in all different houses and oh, just, yeah, it's a very different world to what we had ever ever seen or heard. Mm. Yeah, so he was he was kicking around with them, but at that stage we believe that Owen and Nathan Blunder were doing a lot of um, robberies. Corey was then taking the stuff to Canberra and offloading it there. Oh, so this was a regular sort of pattern. Oh, it had only just become. It had only just become because Owen had only just gotten out of juvie probably three or four months previous okay. to killing Corey, yeah. Owen Fuller and his associate Nathan Blundell had apparently stolen a generator and then had taken it to your brother Corey for him to offload in Canberra, which he had apparently done and then, according to court documents, had not passed any of the proceeds on to Owen Fuller and Nathan Blundell. Naturally enough, they were upset about that and they took to Facebook and a Facebook war, in inverted commas, ensued and threats of violence towards your brother Corey were part of that war. Were you aware of that? Were you seeing that uh, unfold on Facebook? No. Right. No, no, not at all. So you were completely unaware of, of this entire story until you got a phone call? Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. We weren't even aware of the people, like by the yeah. stage that he was kind of hanging around with. Um, we knew that he'd gone back and forth from Canberra to Young uh, to his house and uh, Deb, which was his new partner, which... When I say partner, I mean he's seen her as a cash cow, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, she cared about him, but it was a really easy ticket for him because he had somewhere to live and, you know, she had she was cashed up and she would say to me, oh, I just gave him a little bit of drugs here and there, you know, just to get him by. So, so I, you know, just like like I keep saying, just a completely different world to um, to what we ever used of. Gosh, how disappointing for you to to learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, and it becomes so complicated, doesn't it? So he's not with <laughs> by this stage, by the time this all of this happens, the sale of the generator. He's now living with another lady in Canberra, is that right? Yes, that's correct. He would just go back to <laughs> every whenever he was in young just to stay there or the relationship tethered out because she got pregnant to another person and told Corey it was his until the day that baby was born and then it became evident that that child wasn't his. How did that become evident? Because uh, not so much but this baby born looked exactly like Adam, which was one of the other people living in the house. Yeah, I'm talking like a commission house with possibly uh, up to seven adults staying there at a time two older girls plus my niece and now a baby and halfway house, pretty full on. So but Corey would always, if would ring, nine times out of ten, Corey would answer it and he would be like, yep, do you need anything? What can I get you? She was she was well into the whole game of everything that was going on. 
you've received this phone call and then that night you've received confirmation from Glebe Mortuary that your brother's been identified. He has been the victim of a brutal bashing with the blunt side of a tomahawk. Yep, um, and the sharp side too, according to Tui's uh, injuries. We, I then went straight to my mum's, drove to my mum's house the next morning, obviously. I drove mum to Young, which is about a six-hour drive from Bendigo. My goodness. What do you remember of that drive? Oh, just bewilderment. Um, like I had, I had a three-year-old son at home and just disbelief, a bit, bit of everything. Like I, I it was like, yeah, probably more disbelief than anything. More so trying to calm mum down, like, because there was so much talk about how horrific his injuries were. Obviously, as a mother, that's, yeah, not something that you want spread all over the news, hearing that his teeth were found in the back of his throat and, yeah, big, big talk. And the sister of the murderer actually Facebook messaged mum to say, do you realise that was your son that got killed? Like this is the the intellect of these people that you're dealing with. Yeah, just just things like that. So yeah, we drove to Young and yeah, went basically met up with the homicide um, people, spoke with them, took our statements and and things like that. And yeah, then we tried to catch up to see uh, my niece and kind of made it pretty hard to do any of that. So we kind of called into the house, but, you know, the house, there's 20 people there and just, yeah, just not, I'm not usually one to hold my tongue whatsoever. And so I just kind of had to leave because it was, it was just not any use being there basically. Oh, that must have been a bizarre scenario to be in that house. Oh, it was. It was surreal because I did never wanted to be there when he was alive because of the way that they chose to live. And here I was because he was dead and and not really having a choice because, you know, I had to be there type, type thing. By this time, I was playing the I don't know nothing game, you know, I don't know nothing. And whereas Deb, she was exploding you know, at everyone and anyone, I know who did it and used it. And she was pretty much on the money with all of it. Do you think most people in the house that day knew exactly what had happened? Everybody in that town knew the next day. He had actually posted on Facebook after he killed Corey, that's the way the cookie crumbles. (gasps) Oh, my God. Yeah, literally within 20 minutes of killing Corey, he had put that on there. I mean, everybody, his mother knew, everybody knew except for us because we weren't in that that circle. So when, how long did it take the homicide detectives to speak to you about their suspicions, what they thought was happening? It took them probably about um, two to three months to really hone in on and tell us what they did know. But because he took off to Queensland, after killing Corey, he still went on a rampage, Owen Owen did, and then his mum booked him a flight under an assumed name. So some friends drove him to Sydney to catch a flight to Brisbane. Uh, There he did a couple of armed robberies and that's when he ended up in jail. By then the police kind of knew that they had him in one spot, so that's when they they got us back in 
to New South Wales and they asked us to do a recording for Prime News. It was so that it put more pressure on the people around Young that knew what was going on to talk more about it. They were still having trouble getting statements from people and things like that because a lot of them were probably scared of Owen. After an attack like that, I don't blame them. I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah, that's right. And he was a very, very, I have his his psych report. He was classed as a psychopath. In, in his psych report, there's recommendations that he doesn't even attend any programs within jail because he has the ability to change the mindset of anybody teaching those programs. Wow. Now, this is an 18-year-old. This is an 18-year-old. You know, like even during the court case of Blundell, Blundell's solicitor was quoted as saying, I doubt that I have seen a worse criminal history, at least a more extensive criminal history of one so young. The number of pages of a criminal history sometimes do not mean very much, but it merely needs to be said that his appearances in the children's court amount to 50 pages of criminal history. And he was only 18. So because of his now in jail in Queensland in unrelated, you know, incident, a lot of people then did start talking because he's kind of up there and and now they can talk. Um, So we did that and that's when we started getting the whole story from Homicide. They, you know, they told us all about the money and the Facebook and everything. Before then we, we had just kind of had to work out what was going on just through social media basically. Um, yeah, so once we were kind of filled in, there was lots of information, of course, like usual that we, we couldn't share because um, they wanted people to come forward. And, yeah, and basically once they they got um, him up in jail in Queensland, that's when they, they charged him with the murder, which he made full admissions to at that stage. And now he's trying to go through the court of appeal to say that he was was hearing voices in his head and stuff now. Yeah, so he's trying to play that card now because um, he realises that, yeah, it's going to be a long time till he walks out of there. Well, I guess that's the risk, though, isn't it, with gaining a reputation like that? So just as Stephen Rothman described Fuller, who was 18, this is the judge that you're talking about there, as as having a psychopathic profile, and he said that he used a former girlfriend's Facebook account to lure your brother, Corey, away from the house that he was staying at in Young on the night of his murder, and that this was part of the plot to bash him because of the $600 debt. That's what it amounted to over the generator. So... I guess that that's the risk you take when you label someone who is a psychopath because we know that psychopathic tendencies include this incredibly stealthy mind so that when you give them something like this, a psychopath is just as likely to see it as an opening to say, well, then in that case, why don't I pursue a mental health angle in my court dealings, which is what he seems to be doing. Exactly. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It says that he'd been regularly drinking, taking ecstasy since the age of 13. Yes. Killing animals, setting stuff on fire, uh, bedwetting until a teenager, typical um, attributes of a, of a psychopath. He first fronted court as a 10-year-old. 
Yeah. He had an abusive and deprived early childhood, although it doesn't go into details about that. But, I mean, we know that lots of people do and don't go on to, you know, kill animals and then humans. You know, my brother was no angel either. He, he unfortunately had a drug habit that he had to um, feed in some way or other. And if we could have got any help for him, oh, we would have 100 times over. You know, and we tried a hundred times over, but it was just easier to live that life there with all those people. You know, and I, I remember saying to the detectives, like, they're still dealing drugs from this house and you are sitting out the front filming it. Like, I, I just can't understand where the ball was dropped. Like, my brother, if anything, he should have been in jail. He shouldn't have even been on the streets to be murdered. Well, ideally, I guess, in some kind of diversion program rather than jail as well. Yeah, that's right, because it wasn't going to work. And the amount of even charges that Corey, you know, like mostly driving or, or just simple ones like that, he'd be bailed in a heartbeat. And it was just like, you know, one time I remember getting a call and, oh, you know, I'm in trouble, I'm going to court. And I was just thinking, oh, God, I hope they lock you up because, it, you know, at least it's, a little bit of intervention, probably nothing great, but, you know, God, you know, you just get so frustrated because you see these people and you just think they, these people are walking around the streets. They're, they're, well, Blundell is now living in the same house as my niece. As you've no doubt noticed, there are now two options when it comes to supporting us as independent podcast producers. You can either make a one-off contribution or become a regular contributor through Patreon. There are links for both options in the show notes. Thank you to our patrons Louisa G, Holly Travers, Sue Lang, Clutchy Carson, Christina Mack and Zoe Potts. 18-year-old Owen Jr. Fuller pled guilty to the murder of Corey Power pretty much as soon as police caught up with him in Queensland. He allegedly told police that as soon as he saw Corey in the street that morning, he walked over to him and, quote, I hit him, I punched him, then he fell down, and then he got back up. Then I punched him again, and it knocked him out or something, because he didn't get back up. And then I had the tomahawk down my back, and I pulled it out, and I hit him with the blunt end of it. I didn't want to do it, and I was trying to stop as I was doing it. But then, as I'd try and stop it, it made me want to go harder and hit him again. I just wanted to break his legs, do something to mess him up and teach him a lesson. I'm not even angry with him. That's why I don't even know why it happened. He didn't deserve to go the way he did. This account is consistent with the psychologist's report tendered during Fuller's sentencing hearing. The psychologist testified that Fuller's psychopathic personality was well entrenched and that he should be prevented from accessing certain treatments in the prison system because they may exacerbate his ability to manipulate. Justice Rothman of the New South Wales Supreme Court sentenced Owen Jr. Fuller to a minimum of 17 years in jail for the murder of Corey Power. Unlike Fuller, Nathan John Blundell pleaded not guilty to the charge of being an accessory before the fact in the matter of the murder of Corey Power. He was, however, found guilty by a jury. Specifically, Blundell was found guilty of using Facebook and text messages to counsel, procure and encourage Owen Jr. Fuller 
to murder Corey Power. In December 2016, Blundell was sentenced by Justice Hall of the New South Wales Supreme Court to a minimum of seven years jail. Blundell is now living in the same house as Mohanes. Yeah, yep. And that relationship had been going on for a very long time. Now, she is well into her 30s, probably 37, 38 now, and he's early 20s. And the minute he got out of jail on his appeal, because he managed to get it appealed, he moved in with her. So your niece is living with a man the court accepted who knew her father was about to be murdered and did nothing about it, did not alert authorities, did nothing to help him. Who called for his murder. Who called for his murder. Who messaged messaged for his murder to take place. And he lives with... And my niece has no idea because she's 11 years old and... When we found out that Blundell was living back with um, we only found out again through Facebook because she put on there that she was in a relationship with him and my niece messaged me through Facebook and I asked her, where are you living? And then she said, oh, I'm living with mum and her boyfriend. And I said, is that Blundell? And she said, yeah. I said, okay, because she wanted us to go visit. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, how can you... You know, so then I said, listen, we we can't be and I didn't tell her anything and then her mum's contact because she said, I don't want knowing anything I'll tell her when I'm ready and if she wants to hate me then, then she can hate me, et cetera, et cetera. The night that Corey, well, the early morning, but that night Corey was at her house on the couch. When Corey left to go and meet up with somebody earlier in the night, was the one that told Blundell that Corey's back in town. And Blundell then sent a message to Fuller and said, he's back in town. So, I mean, <laughs> it is what it is. Like my head can't get around the, you know, everybody in this town knows what's happening. Like you, they are dealing drugs and all this while there's kids in these houses and the police know that and I, I struggled really big time with the detective during conversations of how can how do you ever expect to get a hold of you know get on top of any of this when just the basics and he said we don't care about the small fish we want the big fish at the moment that was their response to me anybody that was you know the big head honcho selling the drugs and stealing the stuff and rah, rah, they didn't care about all these little small ones. And that's where, you know, the ice habits, that's where they all escalate is through these smaller people. And that's where the crimes and these murders and everything stem from, not the big people. They walk away from it. I know, it's so hard to understand. I try to have faith and because we talk to so many investigators on this show and I so I try to have faith that there's a higher purpose to it all that yeah. I just don't understand. But then, I, you know, we talk to families and it's so hard. It's so hard to have have that faith and keep that faith. I don't get it either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our detective, he was oh, fantastic. Mm. Like, I mean, there was not a second that we couldn't bring him and discuss anything with him. And he was completely, you know, up straight, whatever we wanted to hear, he would tell us, even if it was the worst thing. 
but the lack of contact like through the DPP and that, they, they didn't even want to take Blunt out of the court. They're like, no, nah, it cost us too much. And I said, I beg your pardon, like this is my brother's life that you're talking about. Um, it's really hard to see your mother struggle to save her son for so many years. You know, she took him to the police station when he first got in trouble. Do something with him. Teach him a lesson. No, he's not bad enough yet. Well, when's he going to be bad enough? You know, like that was the process with with Corey. So it was such a struggle for her. And then to turn around and have to cremate him. So there was no winners after all in all. Even now, so many years later, we're still fighting it all. Like just even for contact. Like I had to message 10 different people just to get an answer after two years of why Blundell isn't in jail. Yeah. And I literally only got an answer like two, three days ago. What was the answer? Well, the they he appealed the decision for the 10-year sentence. He was found guilty by a jury and he got 10 years. And he appealed it. It went through the CCA judgment and basically they said, oh, well, if it goes to court again, there's probably not enough evidence to say that a retrial could be done. So she basically said there's no retrial. The original conviction remains set aside. And yet they have the messages. And he agreed to all the statements of the facts before the court, even though he said he wasn't guilty, but he agreed to all the facts that were presented. So they're basically saying because of the money, we, we're not bothering. And that's the hardest part because it's like somebody being sentenced to 10 years and then turn around and, and waving to you, you know, stuff you and then moving in with your niece, like that's, you know, that's not not right. It's not right. And us having to chase all the information, we were told if you want information, you need to look for it. That's what I was told by Catherine. She said, if you want any information, you have to write to the DPP. I said, well, that's you. And she said, oh, well, I've only just come on the case, so I need to look through the notes. My mum should be updated and told, listen, this is the process. I contacted Catherine and said, you told me that you were going to contact me before Christmas. I said, it's now the end of February. I know that Fuller has gone back to court for his appeal and you still haven't contacted me. And because we're in Victoria, we can't just jump in the car and go down to the, you know, I have three kids and we run a business. My mum works full time. You know, it's not, you know, the borders are closed half the time at the moment. (laughs) You know, you cannot get any information from any of these people. They do not, they don't care for it. And, yeah, the DPP, they're just like, no, nah, it cost us too much. One of the original solicitors, Regina Brown, she said, I'm not spending over half a million dollars on a case that I don't think is going to work. And I said, well, I'm going to request a new lawyer. I said, because I don't think that you should work on any case if that's that's how you see it. And we got a new uh, lawyer and that was then taken to court and we won the bloody case. So, <laughs> Yeah. We've learnt that a lot, yeah, on this show, that finding that person who has the passion to just keep pushing for you, to really advocate for you, it's it's a game changer. Yeah, that's it. And my purpose is like people say, oh, how can you still talk about it? Because your brother wasn't, you know, I, like I said, I've never for one minute ever denied what my brother was doing and the choices he's made. Never, I never, ever did. 
He's still a person. And again, we've heard it so many times with women who have a history of sex work or drug use. There's just not this passion to fight no, for because them. oh, they're just a sex worker, right? <laughs> if if it's if it's a young woman who's I don't know seems to have this perfect life, or she's a young mum oh. who seems to be perfect, then everyone's so passionate and up in arms, and there's a, a march of fifty thousand people in the streets. But exactly, yeah. If she doesn't fit that, she's nothing. She's just another case. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I won't be quiet about it because it's it's not fair. And I want no, my that's kids, right. And I want to know that you know this this you need to be accountable for things like this and it's not okay that's right her dad's as important as anybody exactly right and and he may have been on a very difficult track at that time but he he doesn't have a chance to better himself now and the people that are involved in the case have not even made any attempt to better themselves Like, you know what I mean? Like it's not even like they've even learnt any lessons. They're all still kicking around the same place. They're all still doing what they were doing 10 years ago and there's no repercussion for it. Um, And then they go and let him out of jail and he's like, you know, stick it up your ass, I got acquitted. Well, now Fuller was sentenced to 30 years with a 17-year non-parole period. At the moment, but he's uh, fighting against that, is he? He's trying to have that overturned. Yeah, he's not overturned. He's trying to have it acquitted. God, actually acquitted. Um, to say, and I'm waiting on the reports. Like we will get that. Um, the appeal was on the nineteenth of February. It's been the decision's been held over, of course. Um, and she just said, uh, "I'll let you know." Um. I understand that Catherine has been in touch with you from our witness assistance service, which she's been no service whatsoever. Um, and and Marley, who is our new solicitor, who I have no idea who she is, um, has basically just said that, yeah, she'll just let us know at some point. And I'm like, wow, I just want to scream. Like, how can you make, make sure, like, I want to scream at her, make sure that he does not get acquitted for this. You know, are you serious? That first judge who who made a point of saying this guy has psychopathic tendencies, he also made a point of saying the likelihood of reoffending is very high. Yeah. Uh, huge. Huge. Yeah, huge. And we'll keep fighting. Like I'm not going to just lay down and let it go this time. We did for a while. Not let it go, but we've had a pretty horrific couple of years, even just ourselves. And, you know, things were getting back on track and then my mother-in-law was killed and everything's kind of happening again. It's like, no, I'm not going to just be quiet now. And, like, I love the podcast. And Oh, good, thank you. But you have to take care of yourself. Yeah, you do. And But, I, like, I mean, I'll be medicated for the rest of my life due to the trauma of, of all this um, because it is, it's, it's a massive trauma and being you know, holding on to this place for mum as well because I don't want her to go through it, you know. She had to read her, her son's coroner's report. Like it's just horrific. It's stuff that you don't you don't ever want to hear about anybody. I really feel for anybody that doesn't have the confidence to get in contact with people and email people and demand information because they would know nothing. And where where did they go from? Like 
I'm not going to just sit back and, you know, be told this is how it's going to go because it's not fair and it's not safe. It's not safe for anybody to have people like that out on the streets. Thank you to our guest today, Fia Power. If you have a true crime story you'd like to share or that you'd like us to cover, please let us know. Thank you to these patrons, Brittany Cheel, Fiona Hale, Jordan Crawford-Miller, Loz, Isis Jenkins and Kate Gleeson. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network.